Hey everybody, welcome back to our podcast. This is Murder With My Husband. I'm Peyton Moreland. And I'm Garrett Moreland. And he's the husband. And I'm the husband. Welcome back to another episode of Murder With My Husband. I need to give an update on the story from last week. We had so many people write in and want to hear the story of Garrett almost getting arrested by the cops for stealing Amazon packages. <laughs> I did forgot about that. You yeah, just mentioned so it. I'm going to clear that story up real quick right here. <laughs> so we were living at this place and we're like, let's go eat some food. So we opened the door and uh, the house we were living in. <laughs> we were living at this place. <laughs> I don't like all, like, all sketchy. Um, it was just an apartment, like an apartment building. And yeah. there was a big, long staircase up to our apartment. So we go out the door and we look down the stairs and in the parking lot, there's two cop cars literally surrounding Garrett's car it was like a suburban and so there were windows on all sides of the car and they had literally boxed him in like we couldn't get in the car and right as we go out I'm I'm such an idiot but I'm like (gasps) I like gasp and so all the cops turn over and look at us and I look at Garrett and I'm like did you hit somebody? <laughs> that was my first thought was that you would <laughs> yeah. like hit somebody and just drove away or something you were like no yeah, I remember that and I was like oh my gosh why are, that's your car and then the cops yell up. They're like, is this your car? Garrett's like, yeah. And we just start walking down the stairs and we go out. And the cops like rush up to meet us. And they're like, can you guys please take a seat on the like si- on the sidewalk? And Garrett's like, what's going on? And they're like, are you the owner of this car? Where do you like, is this your permanent address? Just like bombarding him with questions. And so after we answered all of the questions and I'm like freaking out. And that's when they asked me. Like they asked me something and I couldn't even come up with the answer because well, I was so scared. And it was weird because they said a neighbor saw you steal an Amazon package off their porch and put it in the back of that car. Yeah. And I was like, what in the and, world? And he did. He had a, well, no, he didn't steal. No, I did not steal he anything. He had packages in the back of his yeah. car because we, we were just, we were just delivering stuff. Yeah. And so Garrett explains that like, oh, that's my job. I'm delivering mm-hmm. the product that's in those packages back there. I can open it up. You can look at them. They wouldn't even let him walk over to his car. And they were being so serious. And they're like, well, we've had multiple complaints that that exact car is stealing packages. And Garrett was yeah. like, go over, like- look at them. It's one product. All the boxes are the same product. So eventually they like calmed down and looked at the product and was like, oh, it's not your car. You're not the person that was stealing yeah. the packages. Garrett's like, no, and we ended up driving away and it was all good. But <laughs> it was, I was so scared because they were being so serious. Yeah, they thought for sure I stole all those packages. No, they thought for sure that you murdered someone. That's yeah. how they were acting. They <laughs> literally boxed in your car. Yeah, they were not happy. I was like. But I still want to know what neighbor completely lied and ratted us out for doing nothing. Because you could see the boxes. Like, you could see the boxes in the back of your car. I was like, window. oh, I sell stuff on Amazon. I don't know what you want me to do. Yeah. Oh, it was so... It was funny after, but in the moment, I was so scared. Garrett wasn't scared. He was just talking to them. Oh, but yeah. I was I was freaking out. I was so scared. I couldn't get over it. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, I totally forgot about that story until last week. I know. It's crazy. That's funny. Okay. So, this week's story was suggested by Melissa Mendoza. So, thank you, Melissa. I try to keep our episodes broad, covering all types of true crime cases, you know, unsolved, murder, survivor, um, kidnapping, all types. Mm -hmm. But when I came across this story, I knew that I just had to do it this week. 
So I'm going to list my case sources. Murderpedia.org, latimes.com, medium.com, thecriminaljournal.com, coffeeordie.com, reviewjournal.com, and then there was a YouTube series two part on this called um the bad samaritan so if you just look that up you can watch like it like the movie it's not a movie it's just a youtube two oh. part series oh okay never mind wait there's a movie called the I, bad thought, samaritan? I thought there was i thought there was a movie called um yeah yeah there's a movie i just looked it up there's a movie called bad samaritan what's it about um it was released in 2018 i don't know I just, I feel like I've heard of it. You just knew the name and so you said it? (laughs) I feel like I've heard of it, so that's why I asked. Maybe it's about this. Oh, I don't think so. I think it would have came up when I was researching. Here, I'll read the... Okay, read it. It says, a young valet breaks into a man's home and discovers a terrified woman who's chained and gagged. After After notifying the police, he soon becomes the target of the psychopath's wrath as he tries to rescue the victim that he left behind. No, not it, but I should watch that. Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay, so let's just jump right in. Okay. 18-year-old Jeremy Strohmeyer and 17-year-old David Cash are wandering around the arcade at the Prima Donna Casino, which is 43 miles south of Las Vegas. They had traveled there from Long Beach, California with David's dad for Memorial Day weekend on May 25th, 1997. Jeremy was wearing baggy shorts and a backwards UCLA Bruins baseball cap, according to Nora with Los Angeles Times. He was working his way around the casino, showing off his fake ID, his pierced tongue, and nipple rings to as many teenagers as he could find. As time went on, now into the early morning hours of the 25th, and David's dad was still gambling away, Jeremy and David grew bored. They decided to try and urinate on some slot machines and see if they would get caught. What? So they just went around, started peeing on slot machines to see if they'd get kicked out. But they never got kicked out. That's so weird. Keep in mind, they're 17 and 18. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, not that it doesn't make it weird, but... (laughs) Um, Jeremy was adopted into a well-off Long Beach family at 18 months old. He was an honor student, 3.5 GPA that could have been a 4.0 if he had put any effort in. He was smart, taking advanced classes and building his own computers. He already had his pilot license. He had traveled with his family, living in Singapore for a year, his sophomore year of high school. His family had maids, a four-seater plane, and many nice cars. He's 18? 18. Wow. Jeremy's adoptive parents noticed him acting out after returning to school from Singapore. He was hiding things, started using drugs, and lying. He was known as a party-goer that drank too much and flew into rages that ended up in him getting kicked out of most of those parties. He was killing animals and fighting with friends and family. He had a girlfriend named Agnes that he became obsessed with. She started to pull away from him. He clung to her. By senior year, his parents chalked it up to, you know, teenage rebellion and his friends Mm -hmm. chalked it up to him having senioritis. Yeah. Jeremy decided to move out and began hanging out with David Cash because of all the turmoil going on with his parents. His senior year, he was like, I'm moving out. But it sounds like his family was... Very wealthy. Yes. Okay. So he meets David Cash, his friend that he's in Las Vegas with at the beginning of this episode. Mm -hmm. And they start hanging out. Together they, you know, start wreaking havoc on Long Beach, California. (laughs) They harass sex workers and homeless people. Oh, man. I'm not going to go into detail, but they were not being very good kids. Yeah, it's not good. 
Jeremy decided after a while to move back home after speaking to a teacher that he looked up to very much at school, but his parents set some strict rules. You know, you have a curfew, you have to be here or you're getting kicked back out and we're not providing for you. Uh After crashing their car and then piercing his tongue and nipples, Jeremy's parents were relieved when David Cash's dad offered to take David and Jeremy to Vegas for Memorial Day weekend. Isn't that funny that we call it Memorial Day weekend? Weekend. Wait, yeah, that is kind of funny. But I was going to ask, why were the, so the parents were relieved that. Yeah, because they were like, he's finally off our hands. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, So, I mean, this was just a kid who was acting out against his parents and, you know, figuring out who he was, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. No one expected what would happen on May 25th, 1997. Seven-year-old Sharice Iverson and her brother were exhausted and alone at the Prima Donna Casino. Their 58-year-old father, Leroy, had driven them from their South Los Angeles home to Prim, Nevada, to gamble, a normal occurrence for them. He was a fairly protective father, but their home life was a little bit tumultuous. Leroy Iverson and Sharice's mother, Yolanda Manuel, had been fighting for years. After meeting 45-year-old Leroy while Yolanda was only 15, she moved in with him and dropped out of school after getting pregnant. So there was a 30-year gap between them. It was this massive age gap that had hurt them in their later years. Just two weeks before the Prima Donna Casino gambling trip, Yolanda had actually moved out, leaving Sharice with Leroy. Okay. That Memorial Day weekend in 1997... Leroy did not have the money to get a room for the kids to stay in. So when he got to the casino, he dropped them off at the arcade that was inside and expected them to just play there together while he went and gambled. So Leroy took him and his kids or took his kids to Vegas just to gamble for the weekend. Mm -hmm. Okay. But didn't have enough money to get a room for them that first night. So left him in the arcade. So just left the kids in the arcade and went and gambled. His plan didn't run as smoothly as he had hoped, Sharice being returned to him by security twice after getting lost alone in the casino. Oh, man. One of those times, she had actually wandered across the street to another casino whose security then called their security and said, does this little girl belong to someone in your casino? And they were like, yeah, we've already returned her to her dad once, went and picked her up, returned her to Leroy. Oh, my gosh. Security told him, you know, Leroy, who was severely drunk by this point, that he either needed to tend to his two children that were in the arcade that were not a babysitter. You know, you can't just leave your kids in the arcade or he needed to get his kids and leave the casino. Surprised if they knew he was drunk, they didn't just call the police. Uh, He brushed them off and continued to gamble. Said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Sent the kids back to the casino and continued to gamble. Okay. Sharice returned to the arcade and fell asleep in the seat of a race car game. So you know how you can like sit down in those yeah. seats with the, and you race it? So she fell asleep in one of those seats. I feel like as a kid, those are kind of comfortable. <laughs> she was <laughs> tired and it was 3 a.m. at this point. It was the middle of the night and he was still gambling. And so these kids were just like exhausted. After she woke back up, because I can't imagine you're getting very good sleep in the middle of a casino, she and her brother decided to run around and start playing again. Sharice was pelting her brother with paper wads um, when one missed and hit someone else, Uh-oh. a young man who was showing off his tongue piercing to a 16 year old girl, a young man named Jeremy Strohmeyer. Oh man. Jeremy picks up the paper wad and tosses it back to Sharice. They start playing back and forth. She runs away in her blue sailor dress and black cowboy boots. And he starts to chase her. You can see this security footage on YouTube the, of them playing. The uh, older kid. 
uh, Jeremy starts to chase the little girl. Yes. So Jeremy, who oh. we talked at, about at the beginning. Yes. Is now chasing Sharice, who we just talked about around the casino. And you can go on YouTube and watch this footage. For 11 minutes, the two run up and down the casino aisles playing hide and seek. Jeremy, an 18-year-old wealthy teenager from Long Beach, and Sharice from L.A., who weighed around 46 pounds. She's in second grade. Jeremy whispered to Sharice that the only place that she would be safe from him Um, Because they were playing hide and seek. The only place that she would be safe from him finding her during their game would be if Sharice went into the girls' bathroom. So at 3.47 a.m. on May 25th, 1997, Sharice ran into the ladies' room at the Prima Donna Casino, and 18-year-old Jeremy quietly followed her in there. So Jeremy just left his friend and the girl that he was showing the piercings off with and just started chasing the little girl around. Yeah, just start playing with her is what he called it. David Cash, Jeremy's friend, who had watched Jeremy play with the seven-year-old Sharice, curiously entered the bathroom as well. When he walked in, he saw Jeremy and Sharice playing with wet paper towels. They they had gotten them wet and then were just throwing them at each other. Sharice then picked up the yellow wet floor sign that was in the bathroom and like hoisted it up and hit Jeremy. Not hard, just like they were playing, and so she hit Jeremy with it. Uh Uh-huh. David says something in Jeremy snapped at that point, like the many parties they had been to, like the many fits of rage that he had seen Jeremy have, but this time it was on Sharice. Jeremy picked her up, covered her mouth with his hand, and brought her into the handicap stall that was in the ladies' room. He locked the stall door behind him. David ran into the stall next to him, jumped up on the toilet, and looked over the top of the stall. What he saw was Sharice struggling Jeremy holding her down, covering her mouth, telling her to shut up or that he was going to kill her. What the heck? David says he didn't say anything. But when Jeremy looked up at him, he looked back with an urgent face. The game they had been playing had gone way too far. He even reached down and like swatted Jeremy's hat off his head trying to get his attention. But Jeremy wasn't having it. He looked back down. And according to David, he had a glazed look over his face. David jumped off the toilet and walked back out of the restroom. He didn't want to see what Jeremy was going to do. He had only been in the restroom for two minutes. And we know that because of the security footage. You see him go in and two minutes later come out. Oh, I thought he was going to like jump over the stall or something. You would think. Yeah. After David left, Jeremy took off Sharice's boots, lifted up her dress and took her underwear off and started to molest her. That's the only details I'm going to go into about that part. Oh, that's horrible. Two women entered the bathroom in the middle of this gruesome attack, and Jeremy hid Sharice on the top of the toilet so that there was only one pair of legs if someone were to look down under the stall. Jeremy held his hand over her mouth so that she wouldn't make any noise, but he was squishing her onto like the toilet yeah. with his body. When the women left, Jeremy turned around and realized that Sharice was non-responsive. He had been crushing her. Her breathing was labored. He strangled her at that point and attempted to snap her neck twice. Oh, my God. He said that he thought she was brain dead. And so he said, uh, I might as well, I might as well just kill her. That's so horrible. He put Sharice's boots, pants, and underwear inside the toilet bowl and then put her legs in the toilet bowl and folded her body over them. So she was completely tucked up off the floor mm-hmm. and just folded sitting on the toilet bowl. He used toilet paper to clean up and then walked out of the bathroom 24 minutes after he had followed Sharice in. 
What's crazy is you think he would be smart enough to think, oh, there's all these security cameras around here. I'm in a casino in Las Vegas. And I just spent 24 just spent, minutes yeah, in here. I don't, no one's ever going to know I did it. Literally. Jeremy walked out, found David, and told him, I just killed that little girl in there. Oh. They left the casino briefly after that with David's dad and on their way continued to show off their piercings to people, the valet, everyone. David didn't say anything. He just walked out with him. Mm -hmm. They continued on their trip to Las Vegas. They played slot machines, drank beer, and even rode the New York, New York roller coaster. They did talk about what had happened at the Prima Donna Casino. David told Jeremy that the cameras had to have caught him. There were definitely cameras in there. Jeremy said he thinks that the cameras weren't working. The more they talked about the crime, the more paranoid David grew. Jeremy seemed fine. According to Los Angeles Times, if they got caught, they were going to say that they were just in the bathroom playing hide and seek and that the little girl locked herself in the stall and then David left and Jeremy followed him out. But then David was like, well, if we say that, they're not going to see you walk out of the bathroom. And he yeah. said, I'm just going to say that I walked directly over to the men's bathroom and then I, I, my stomach hurt. And so I was in there for the rest of the, the 23 minutes. Okay. They left Las Vegas on Monday night and dropped Jeremy off at his home in Long Beach at 3.15 a.m. The next morning, David and Jeremy woke up to the video footage of them following Sharice into the bathroom being plastered all over the news. Oh, Do you recognize these men? That's crazy. It obviously didn't take long for fellow kids from school to recognize two of their classmates. It wasn't a secret that they had gone to Vegas together and Jeremy had actually already told two other people what he had done, but no one believed him because he was a partier. He was a drunk. He was into drugs. Is That has to be like such psychopath behavior, right? To tell other people, oh, I killed someone. Exactly. And just be so nonchalant about it. Classmates ended up calling the police and panic finally started to set in for Jeremy. Three days after the murder, Jeremy packed his bag burned his clothes from that night, and was ready to leave town. The cops were stationed outside of his home in Long Beach, and when he waited for his mom to pull up. And then when she came walking into the front door, he slipped out the back door and made a run for it, but cops saw him and a chase ensued. Oh. Jer Jeremy's mom was confused when the front door was unlocked and she went in, but Jeremy wasn't home. He never left. The, like they never left their house unlocked. Yeah. She went up to his room and found his ADD medication bottle empty. And there was a note. It said, I am so sorry. I just pray that this is enough to finish me off. Please, Lord, let me die. I'm sorry, mom. I'm sorry, dad, Heather, all my friends and family. Forgive me for I have sinned. I'm sorry. Please give these things to Agnes. Tell her I will always love her. Remember, Agnes was his girlfriend. Oh, that note that gives me the chills because it's just. Next to the note were items from his relationship with Agnes, like love notes and stuff. Police captured Jeremy, obviously, mm -hmm. and took him into the station. Jeremy waived his right to have an attorney present during his interview and gave his confession twice. Saying, I killed her. I went in, followed her in there, killed her, gave details. It's like the story I just told you is what he told That's them. Such strange behavior. David, uh, his friend that was with him, went to the police station with his dad and gave his statement implicating Jeremy, said, yeah, I followed him in there. He was holding her in the stall. I walked out. He came out, said he killed her. So I wonder how much, I mean, I'm sure you're going to talk about it, but I'm curious how much trouble, yeah. quote unquote, trouble mm -hmm. he can get into. It's a big part of this case. Okay. 
So um, the next day at school, like David goes to school the next day, he was pulled out of his first hour class and told that he couldn't attend the rest of the year and that his diploma would be mailed to him because he wasn't arrested. Only Jeremy was. Mm -hmm. Jeremy was charged with first degree murder, first degree kidnapping and sexual assault of a minor. Jeremy hired Leslie Abramson, who represented many high profile cases as his attorney. He changed his story once he hired an attorney, like most people like do. Most people, yeah. And said that he was high at the time, and he actually doesn't remember the murder, um, and that he thinks David actually possibly did it, and then turned around and blamed it on him, even though David was only in there for two minutes. That's so crazy that he turns around and just blames his friend. Yeah. Um, this is when the details of Jeremy's birth parents came out. According to LA Times... Jeremy's biological father is serving a 32-month sentence for possession with intent to sell marijuana. For most of the past 10 years, Jeremy's attorneys would learn that he had been in California prisons for drug-related crimes. Jeremy's birth mother was from an upper-class family, but she had a drug problem. At the time of Jeremy's birth, she was in her teens, confined to a psychiatric ward at the county hospital, having been declared unable to care for herself. Diagnosed as a schizophrenic, she had been committed to a California state hospital for 11 years. In the course of her life, she has been committed 70 times, according to court records. Does Jeremy know about any of this? No. Like, had he ever known no, about this before? No, this was before? the first time it came out was when the attorney started digging. Okay. Um, his mom had been diagnosed as having obsessive compulsive disorder and possibly um, a form of alcohol dependence. Mm-hmm. Jeremy's trial was scheduled for September 1988 as the prosecution built up a defense. They found hundreds of images of child pornography on Jeremy's computer. Um, There were chat room logs of him talking with other men about child sex. Keep in mind, he's 18. Yeah. And testimonial from friends who said, yeah, Jeremy talked about explicit things like that had to do with underage girls and children all the time. But we all just thought he was joking. Wow, so it obviously wasn't just this first time. Well, it wasn't just like he went in there yeah. playing with a little girl and snapped. I think he knew what he was doing. Yes, probably. I think the the whole premise of this is what eighteen year old spends eleven minutes running around a casino playing yeah. hide and seek with a second grader. Like that in in and of itself is weird. That's why I ask because I mean it might be normal to be like oh hi hi like, yeah you know? I'll throw this wad yeah. back to you that just but hit then me. you kind of just go off on your you're own you're talking and to a sixteen year old yeah. girl which is way closer to your age but he saw her and it was an instantly instant, stopped instant talking snap. to the girl yep. wanted to play with this little girl totally so he was a pedophile oh yeah from he, the he had a bunch of child pornography oh, on yeah. his computer oh yeah. oh yeah so it also came out during preparation for trial that Jeremy had asked. Agnes to dress up his girlfriend to dress up as a little schoolgirl during sex. Wow. Um, did you know that when you Google the words schoolboy, young boys in school uniforms pop up? Just like a schoolboy, that's what, like when you think of schoolboy, that's what would pop up. Mm-hmm. But when you Google schoolgirl, provocative pictures of women in school, skanky schoolgirl uniforms pop up. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying some people aren't ready for that conversation, so we'll leave it at that. But this is the reality of the world. Uh Jeremy was facing a death sentence. So after all of this evidence and hours before trial, Jeremy pled guilty to first degree murder instead of going on with trial. So he was tried in Nevada, I assume, and not California? Yes. Okay, that makes sense. And he, this whole time he was like, we're going to trial. His attorney was like, 
we're going to trial. Um, she thought, I think we could totally call this off based upon it could be genetic. Look at his messed up parents. He had no idea. He wouldn't have been taking drugs if he knew that both of his parents basically were dependent insanity, on drugs. An insanity sort mm-hmm, of play. Basically. And okay. also saying he was high at the time. She tried to say that he was addicted to meth mm-hmm. and that he was high at the time. And so he didn't even realize what was going on. And obviously he had looked at this stuff before. So that's why he did it. It wasn't because, you know, he was just in the, in the moment. I wonder if attorneys ever think that that's the real reason or if they just convince themselves that, yeah. oh, this is why this happened. I, Does that I make can, sense? Yeah, mm-hmm, I can see what you're saying. Well, because to me, it's like he, you read his, oh, so she said, oh, his two confessions were peer pressured by the cops. They told him to say that. It was mm-hmm. very obvious what happened to that little girl. It wasn't like in question what had happened. Um, they had already talked to David, so they led him in that he, it wasn't his confessions. Plus they completely abused his right to have an, like an attorney present, which is just, it's just like all the evidence before that, right? He left a note on the bed Bed. and he took all the pills and he told two other people at school. He was running away. Yeah. he had even told Agnes that he had killed her. Oh, he did. But he said, Oh, I didn't rape her. David did. Okay. That's that's interesting. Actually, he didn't rape her. That's really interesting. Exactly. Um, the the cops were like, no, he literally came in and was like, I know I could have an attorney, but they just kind of make everything messy and I just kind of want to get this out in the open, so I'm not going to bring one in. Wow. Yeah, but she was like, no, they, they abused his privilege, yeah. whatever. So Jeremy was facing a death sentence. So then he says, okay, instead of going to trial, I'm just going to plead guilty so I don't have the death sentence. He pleads guilty to first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, sexual assault on a minor with substantial bodily harm, and sexual, and just regular sexual assault on a minor. On October 14, 1998, Jeremy Strohmeyer was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole at 18 years old. He was originally imprisoned at Eli State Prison, but was moved to Lovelock Correctional Center where he is today. Okay. He has tried to appeal his sentence multiple times, but no judge is having it this far. What are you going to appeal? So they actually like made a rule saying if someone 18 or under is sentenced to life in prison, they Uh. get re-looked at because minors might not, even though he was 18, teenagers might not know what they're doing. But considering the severity of the case, I'm sure no. Yeah, the judges just were like, nope, sorry, that doesn't apply to you. You didn't go and rob somebody, Mm -hmm. you... Yeah. So the interesting part is that uh, Jeremy is actually married. A woman started writing love letters to him in prison and their wedding was in the visiting room in the Lovelock Correctional Center in 2009. Wow. Jeremy is now 40 years old. That's crazy. And married. And there's an interview with the wife and she's like, listen, I'm not crazy. I'm a normal girl. I just like I just fell in love. So do they get to like see each other? Well, obviously no. they get to see. Oh, just in the visiting room. Yeah, in the visiting mm-hmm. room. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it was just more over letters. You can go. You can get online. So how'd they get married? You can get married in the visiting room uh-huh. like that. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. It, I think it's like a right of prisoners or something to that get they married. Can get married. Oh, okay. Um, you can go online. I'm not sure what the website is, but you can type in a name and see if they're willing to get letters because there's prisoners out there who are like yeah write to me i want to have pen pal or whatever and so yeah you can get on and i didn't know that so in october of 1999 and i just think this part is hilarious jeremy's adoptive parents sued la county and its adoption workers 
They stated that social workers failed to tell them about Jeremy's birth parents' mental illnesses and that if they had told them, they never would have adopted Jeremy. What? I'm like, are you serious? You can't do that. No. That's messed that up. That is so, yeah, that yeah. is so disrespectful. That is, yeah, that's not. That's, I just think that. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened to David? So David Cash has never been charged for anything in this case. So David was never even charged as an accomplice or anything? Nope. He, um, at that time in Nevada, it wasn't illegal to not report to the police if you had seen a crime. Although he was morally incorrect, he wasn't lawfully incorrect. He attended UC Berkeley after all of this happened, and there was a legit protest about his attendance and i don't mean like oh the students were like oh we don't want him here like they went out with signs and and like picketed and marched in front of the university saying Mm -hmm. we don't want him here we don't want him here the uh uc berkeley didn't ever kick him out though because i mean he didn't technically break the law yeah so even though what they think he did was completely inappropriate you can't just illegally yeah you can't just kick him out um He has been nicknamed the Bad Samaritan and has said some awful things about this case. So I'm going to tell you some of them. Oh, no. In an interview, they said, Were you appalled that a friend said that he killed a little girl? David said, I'm not going to get upset over somebody else's life. I just worry about myself first. I'm not going to lose sleep over somebody else's problems. They said, Well, then why didn't you just turn Jeremy over to the police? He said, I didn't want to be the person who took away his last day, his last night of freedom. What? They said, do you still consider Jeremy a friend? He said, yeah, he didn't do anything to me. Oh, my gosh. You're kidding me. According to Murderpedia, Cash, David Cash told Los Angeles Times that he did not dwell on the murder of Sharice Iverson. That's horrible. Um, he said that this case has actually made it easier for him to score with women. Those were his exact words. He also told Long Beach Press Telegram, I'm not an idiot. I'm going to make some money off of this case. I don't, I don't, everything he said just sounds crazy. After a couple of years, he did express some remorse over Iverson's death in a radio interview that he did. He said, I do have a lot of remorse towards the Iverson family. It was a very tragic event. The simple fact remains, though, that I didn't know this little girl. I don't know people in Panama or in Africa who are killed every single day. So I can't feel remorse for them. The only person I know is Jeremy Strohmeyer. So would that be considered sociopathic behavior as well? So that's what people say. People call him a sociopath because he he's still to this day, like someone in an interview, someone asked him, so if you could go back, because what he claims is, I didn't know he was going to kill her. I just thought they were playing around. I didn't know he was going to kill her. So someone asked him in an interview, okay, well, if you, did, if you could go back, then would you have done something differently would you have ran out of that bathroom and mm-hmm. got security would you have tried to jump in the stall and help him and he goes no not really i don't think i would have done anything differently i don't really think i did anything wrong uh, that's unbelievable that's so mind-blowing so is he still i assume just alive today and just mm-hmm. hanging out just mad chilling yeah where's he at well we don't have to talk about that i guess yeah they i they haven't released that information but he did go to uc berkeley to become an engineer okay that's all i know so he's probably just working yeah. somewhere so, um, Sharice Iverson's murder, and this is also according to Murderpedia, 
led to the passage of Nevada State Assembly Bill 267, requiring that people report to authorities when they have reasonable suspicions that a child younger than 18 is being sexually abused or violently treated. Okay. The impetus for this bill stemmed from the inaction of a witness, um, a friend of a murderer who stood by and did nothing during the commission of this crime. According to Medium.com, California also passed the Sharice Iverson Child Victim Protection Act, which requires that people notify law enforcement if they witness a rape, a murder, or a lewd act on a child. Of course, Sharice's family is left without a daughter, no matter who faces charges, but her mom did once say, David Cash shouldn't be able to get on with his life like nothing ever happened. I sure can't. And... I assume it would be considered double jeopardy. Go back and try to So that's charge what him. I don't understand. Because he was never charged, right? Yes. And, and maybe it is because now that the law, it, it was passed after, after, you know, maybe there's like a statute of limitations or mm-hmm. something saying we can't go back and press old, charge old cases. But I mean, now there's literally, you can do jail time if you don't report. Like if you know that sexual abuse is happening to a kid and you don't report to the cops, you can do jail time for that. And I don't know David, obviously, but... Wouldn't you be kind of scared if you were living next to somebody that had that type of behavior? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So it just seems kind of strange, but. Um, So Sharice was buried in Inglewood. Sharice would be 29 now, 29 years old if this hadn't have happened. And that's the story of Jeremy Strohmeyer, the casino crazy. Dang, that that was a crazy one. That's so sad. I know. I know. So that's why I, it was another child murder. Uh huh which I don't want to do two weeks in a row. I try to keep it, you know, sporadic or uh-huh. whatever. But when I when I read that one, when it got sent in and I read it, I was like, I have to do this one. I I feel like I'm a, you know, I always talk about, oh, I love true crime. I know mm-hmm. everything about true crime. And now that people are sending us in murders, I've decided that I don't know that much about yeah. true crime because how do I not know about these cases? Well, it's good to bring awareness to this that's to these the types of cases right too, right it's, it's, is i just want people talking for sharice yeah and so that's why i was like i absolutely have to do this murder totally i'm sad that you know a lot of the cases that we see in the press are little mainstream well it's just like everything is the same socioeconomic status or the Got cases it. that get in the press and i'm surprised that this one wasn't because it seems like a pretty exactly i don't it's so hard. I use the word crazy so much, but what, what other, I mean. I know. Well, I mean, I think all murder is crazy, especially yeah. murder like this where he didn't even know her. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, I said this to someone once who messaged us. All murder is crazy. Yeah. All murder doesn't make sense to me, but murder for fun especially doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Like I'm like okay well that just came out of absolutely nowhere there was no revenge it was just yeah there was no motive Mm -hmm. there was absolutely no motive it wasn't oh you you slept with my wife or oh you did this or you know it's just random the scary thing is if it wasn't sharice it would have been someone Someone else else. down the road it's just it's so 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 which is which is horrible which is also absolutely horrible that there was hundreds of photos of child pornography on his computer yeah oh no 100 percent absolutely horrible yeah yeah i mean his family was struggling with him a lot Mm -hmm. before this whole case like i barely barely skimmed the surface of the the things that they were struggling with um just disrespect and back talking and complete lack of respect for his mom and 
you know, they kicked him out. They let him move back in. Like his life had turned into turmoil and he was actually a very smart kid. At the time of this murder, his GPA was 2.0, but he could have had a 4.0. He was smarter than a lot of people in his class. His SAT yeah. score was high. Like he had potential to go somewhere and do something. And yeah. yeah. Instead, he just was a loser. Dang. Yeah. So... That's the story. Uh, remember to get on our social media and check it out. We have a lot of discussions going on. It's super fun. That's Murder With My Husband, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, share on your stories or share with friends and family. It really helps us out. And yeah, I love it. And I hate it. Goodbye.